our Bibles now, if you would please, to the book of Joshua, chapter 11. Please turn to Joshua, chapter 11. And in our study tonight of Joshua, we're going to look at both chapters 11 and 12. And these are the history of Joshua's final military campaign to subdue the land of Canaan. At this point that we're reading in Joshua 11, uh, the southern portion of Canaan has already been conquered. And now Joshua turns his attention to the northern cities of of Canaan and uh, tries to overcome them. And conquering the south, you remember in our, I think it was in our last message, we talked about that great miracle that God brought forth for the children of Israel when he caused the sun to stand still. And Joshua and Israel were in the middle of a rout. They were killing Canaanites and uh, destroying the enemy. They needed just a little bit of extra time to finish that off, to accomplish the complete victory. And so they needed some more daylight. And so God caused the sun to stand still. Actually, of course, he caused the sun to stop rotating, and so, or the earth, rather. He, he caused the earth to stop rotating. And so for a whole day, the sun didn't, stat, didn't set. And that shows us when you need a miracle, God is there and he can give you a miracle. But we're looking at the northern campaign tonight and things were just a little bit different because the last miracle in the book of Joshua was recorded during that southern campaign. Uh, That was the last great A miracle for them when God caused the sun to stand still. And so in conquering the northern area of Canaan, God did not promise Joshua that he was going to give him a miracle. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that God wasn't working with him, but what it does mean is that when God doesn't have to use a miracle, when he chooses not to, then God can work through ordinary means. Now, tonight we're going to uh, talk about these two chapters, only we're not going to do very much reading in either chapter, but rather we're going to uh, look at what happened here. I'll tell you what happened, and I want to draw some conclusions from some things that we can learn uh, from these 11th and 12th chapters. Now, I got to thinking about this this morning when I announced the uh, title of the message tonight, that it was Life Lessons from Battle, that I intended to tell you this, that this wouldn't be another sermon about marriage tonight. We took that this morning. So, and also thought about this. You know, we had a thing on our listening sheet today. Uh, one of the points of the sermon was that singleness is a choice. And I forgot to mention that for most people, singleness is a choice. For me, it wasn't. Uh, my wife insisted that I marry her, so it wasn't a choice at all. But uh, we're, gonna not, we're not talking about marriage tonight, but we are going to learn some lessons from battle. So please stand, if you would, please. And uh, we're looking at Joshua chapter 11. Let's read just the first 11, or excuse me, first eight verses in Joshua chapter 11. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, had heard those things, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Aksaph, and to the kings that were on the north of the mountains, and of the plains south of Chinneroth, and in the valley, and in the borders of Dor on the west, and to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and to the Amorite, and to the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite in the mountains, and to the Hivite under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they went out, they and all their host with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude, with horses and chariots very many. And when all these kings were met together, they came and pitched together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Be not afraid of them, or be not afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time will I deliver up all slain before Israel. Thou shalt huck their horses and burn their chariots with fire." 
So Joshua came, and all the people of war with him, against them by the waters of Miram suddenly, and fell upon them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who smote them, and chased them unto great Zidon, and unto Mizrapoth Mayhem, and into the valley of Mizpah eastward, and they smote them, until they left none of them remaining. Heavenly Father, we ask you that you would be with us tonight as we discuss your word. And Lord, open up your word to us so that we might learn some good lessons from the book of Joshua. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the remarkable things that comes out of the stories of Joshua's military campaigns is really just the stubbornness of the people in the land of Canaan uh, to realize that their fight against Joshua was just totally hopeless. Time after time, when Israel went into, went into battle, they were fighting against superior forces. Uh, God enabled Israel to, to become victors by the miracles that he brought along. And every time that Joshua and Israel went into a battle, there was not one of the enemy forces that was left standing. Now, in the southern campaign, uh, the Canaanites had taken a defensive posture. They were trying to stand their ground, and they were trying to keep uh, Israel uh, from advancing and taking over their cities. But every time that they tried to stand against Israel, all their defenses were futile. But in the northern campaign, uh, the Canaanites decided that they would take a different tactic. And this time, instead of taking a defensive posture, that they would go on the offensive. So Israel was the invading army, and the Canaanites decided that uh, the only way that they could really get rid of Israel is just to go offensively and try to drive them out of the land. And so far, uh, fighting as individual city-states had not worked. And then the weak coalition that was gathered in the southern campaign, when Joshua was fighting against those Canaanites, that hadn't worked either. And so now all that's left here in the northern part of Canaan are, are these, these different city-states that have not in the past fought together. And so what they decided to do was they would come together, and the largest of the Canaanite cities that existed in the north was the city of Hazor. There were about 40,000 inhabitants there. It was a very important city. It lay on the trade routes between Egypt and Mesopotamia. And the king of that city, the king of Hazor, by the name of Jabin, was probably the most influential person in all of Canaan. So what he decided to do was to uh, use his influence to try to get all of those surrounding cities around the city of Hazor uh, to get together a, a vastly superior army to that of the Israelites. He would put together an overwhelming force and so that it would be impossible for Israel to defeat them. Now, again, a remarkable thing about this is that uh, the northern Canaanites refused to accept defeat. Even in the face of all the mighty miracles that they'd seen, uh, all the uh, things that Joshua and the children of Israel had done during that time, uh, they refused to accept defeat, and they didn't just, just didn't accept what was done by Israel in all of these battles. Well, I think that there's a lesson that we can learn from this by, by looking at how the Canaanites reacted after seeing all that God had done for Israel. And the, the lesson that we can learn, first of all tonight, is what you see with your eyes will not change your heart. What you see with your eyes will not change your heart. The evidence for Israel's God was clearly seen time after time. And yet the Canaanites refused to believe that there was a higher power, that uh, even though they didn't know who this God was, they should have been able to recognize that this God was not on their side. Uh, he wasn't happy with whatever it was that they were doing. 
but they just didn't recognize it. And it seems hard to imagine that, that uh, these people could see a river part and people walk across that river on dry ground, that they could see uh, the walls of a fortified city like Jericho fall, no physical hands that ever been placed against that city in the fight, and yet the walls fell down. Uh, they observed a day when the sun didn't go down for an entire uh, day and then for the next day. And that's something they'd never seen before, not in all of history had they ever experienced that. And yet when they saw all of those things, they didn't realize that something is very strange going on here. Something is strangely amiss. And so the Canaanites didn't catch on. They, they persisted. They were unconvinced that they weren't just another on Joshua's list of cities to be destroyed. Well, how could they do that? I mean, how could they not recognize who God was and just immediately lay down their arms and beg for the, for the mercy of Israel and of God? Well, the real reason is that it doesn't matter what you see with your eyes. The heart won't be changed unless the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates a person through the operation of the Spirit, and that's when truth is revealed to a person. And the proof of that has been seen over and over throughout the Scriptures. We spent several months studying the Gospel of John, and John highlighted seven of Jesus' miracles, his greatest miracles in the book of John, and yet the Jews refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. You remember that time when Jesus healed a man who was born blind, and yet when uh, the Pharisees looked at what Jesus had done. They refused to believe that he was the Messiah, even when uh, they questioned his parents and said, is this your son? Was he born blind? And they attested to it. And yet the Jews refused to believe in Jesus. There was a time when Jesus took those uh, two fish and five small barley cakes, and he fed 5,000 people. But you know, there's not a record in the word of God where a great revival took place. There weren't thousands of people who came to Jesus because of that miracle. Instead, the people refused to believe, and they just followed Jesus around from place to place, hoping that they would get another meal. And so even seeing the miracles that Jesus did, that did not change their hearts. And then there's another story that we're all familiar with in Luke chapter 16, when Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, you remember that the rich man died? Uh, Lazarus also died. Lazarus was a, a follower of Jesus, and so Lazarus was taken into heaven when he died. The rich man, though, was, was cast into hell. And there the rich man lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham, and he saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And he made two requests of Abraham. The first one he said, Would you please send Lazarus to take a, di- a, a, a dip his finger in water and just put a drop of water on my tongue? And Abraham refused that, that request. He said, that, that can't happen because there's a great gulf that's fixed between us. And we can't pass from where you are and neither can you come to where we are. So the rich man then had another request for him. He said, well, then would you please do this? Would you send Lazarus back from the dead in order that he might go tell my brothers that he might witness to them and warn them of this awful place called hell? And Abraham refused that request as well. And when Abraham did, he actually proved the proposition that I'm making now. Is that what you, what you see with your eyes will not change your heart. And so he told the rich man, he said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. They can read that. And if they won't believe that, then neither will they believe if someone were to come back from the dead. 
And so it just doesn't matter what you see with your eyes. That will never change your heart. You must have the Holy Spirit working within you. Now, I don't understand it that there are so many preachers today that are confused about this. They think that you just give people a gospel message, that uh, if you just tell people the gospel, that they'll be able to interpret what they hear. They'll be able to weigh all the facts, and then they can make a decision about whether they want to believe in Christ or not to believe in Christ. But the Bible teaches that man is dead in trespasses and sin. Until that man is regenerated and brought to life, he'll never understand the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit has to speak to him. And so the only thing that a man does without the operation of the Spirit is that he continually hardens his heart even more and more against God. And that's what happened to these Canaanites. In verses 19 and 20 of chapter 11, the scripture says, There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All other they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should not come against, or that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might find, might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. Now what God does Many times when a person persists in their unbelief, when a person stubbornly refuses the light that God has given him, that God finally gives him over to a reprobate heart. And so the Bible teaches that a person can resist the gospel so, so stubbornly that God will eventually remove all influences from him and even God will prevent a person from believing. Well, the Canaanites sinned against the light that they were given. They were murderous, idolatrous people. They were involved in all different types of deviant practices. And so when they saw the God of Israel, they still refused to believe in him. And so that's proof, again, that no one but God can change the heart. Now, another lesson that we learn from the battle, it might seem a little bit more obscure to us, but it's true nonetheless. So the second truth that we learn here is to trust God and not your senses. Trust God and not your senses. Now, if we go back to the time that Israel was wandering in the wilderness, uh, we all know or we remember the reason why that they had to spend 40 years wandering. And that's because when they came to Kadesh Barnea, they sent spies over into the land. When those spies went to search out the land, they came back with a report. At least 10 of the spies came back with a report that said that uh, we can't take the land. The majority of the spies came back with unbelief. And the spies warned Israel. They warned the people before they went of the very things that we see in this chapter. There were many people that were in the land. There were great cities that were there. There were too many of them. And they said, we can't possibly win this battle because of those superior forces. So one of the objections, if you remember, was they said, oh, there are giants in the land. We're afraid of those giants. In Numbers thirteen thirty-three, they were called the sons of Anak. And the spies protested. They said, we can't go in there. There's giants. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. And so their senses said, look at us and look at them. They're too big for us. There's too many of them. And so we can't defeat them. I want you to notice, though, what really happened when Israel got into the land. This is in verses 21 and 22 here in chapter 11. It says, and at that time came Joshua and cut off the Anakims. That's the giants. From the mountains, from Hebron, from Deborah, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel, Joshua destroyed them utterly with their cities. There was none of the Anakims left in the land of the children of Israel. Only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod there remained. 
So these ones that Israel were so afraid of, these giants, the Anakims, the sons of Anak, Joshua hunted down the giants, and he hunted them down specifically. And I think from the reading here, uh, we could surmise that, that Joshua had a very special campaign to go particularly against those giants. That's the ones that Israel was so afraid of in the beginning. So Joshua said, I'm not afraid of them. We're going to root them out. We're going to chase them down, and we're going to kill all of them. And I think the reason that, that uh, God had Joshua particularly pursue those giants is to teach Israel that when you have personal giants in your life, when you have things going on in your life that you think you can't defeat the problem, when your senses tell you that it can't be done, then the Bible teaches you with God's help there's nothing that's too big for you to overcome. Now here's an interesting statement that's made in verse 22 that we just read. He said there were some of the Anakims that were left. In the cities of Gaza and Gath and Ashdod, there remained these, these giants. Some of them were left. Now, if we fast forward about 400 years, you come to the time of Saul and David. Anybody here remember some story in the Bible about David and a giant? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Well, in case you haven't heard about it, we're going to read about it. First uh, Samuel chapter 17, if you'll turn there. Uh, David was a young man, just about 17 years old. He went to the camp of Israel and He was taking some food to his brothers that were fighting in the army. Israel was fighting against their old nemesis, which was the Philistines. And these Philistines had a special warrior that they brought to go against Israel. Now we notice who he is in verse number 4 of 1 Samuel 17. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Now you see that? Uh, There it says he was Goliath from Gath. Nine and a half feet tall, which probably, I think, would put him in the class of giants. But old Goliath, he he was an Anakim. He was actually a descendant from these very same people that had not been completely destroyed way back in the time of Joshua. Now, we read on here in verse number 5, And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. So he was a giant. Now, I'm, of course, sure that all of you are familiar with this story. But we notice something here that these men of Israel were doing the very same thing that the men of Israel did 400 years before, before they went into the land of Canaan. There they are. They're cowering down because of giants. Well, you know what David was? David was the Joshua of his day. Because just like Joshua, he didn't trust his senses. He put his trust in God, and he was able to kill giants. Now, actually, I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, Goliath is not the only giant that David killed. If you look over in Second uh, Samuel chapter 21, you'll find out that David and his men killed four more giants. One of those giants had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. So the point here is that when the devil comes to you and, and puts these doubts into your mind, that instead of surveying the opposition and thinking about things that you can do in your own strength... You just remember what the Apostle Paul said. He said, the weapons are of our warfare are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. 
So what we ought not to do is ever trust our senses. We just trust God because God can do whatever he says he can do. Then the third lesson that we learn here is that the bigger they come, the harder they fall. The bigger they come, the harder they fall. You know, I'd like to have a nickel for every time I heard that. The bigger they come, the harder they fall. When you're a kid in school and the bully's bothering you, your dad tells you, go out there and whip that guy. The bigger they come, the harder they fall. Well, that's an absolutely true statement, but the problem is you've got to figure out how to make him fall. And in the process, you may get the tar beat out of you. So <clears throat> it's true, though. The bigger they come, the harder they fall. Well, we could, of course, relate that to what I've just said about giants, but that's not really what I have in mind here. I want us to think about this force, this fighting force that Israel was up against. There was a great army. Uh, the size of this army was, was so big that Joshua had never fought anything like it before. They had special abilities. They had special weapons. So this is the largest, best-equipped army that Joshua had ever gone up against. The Jewish historian Josephus says that this was an army that was 300,000 men strong. There were 100,000 cavalry and 20,000 chariots. Israel hadn't fought against chariots before. Now, the Egyptians had chariots, but Israel didn't fight against the Egyptians. You may remember that when the Egyptians pursued Israel, they went down into the Red Sea, and God removed all the wheels from their chariots, and Israel never had to worry about fighting them. But now Israel is up against chariots, and most likely these are iron chariots, and they're a very formidable fighting force. Uh, Back in those days, the chariot wheels would have a a long scythe-like appendage that came out of the wheel. And as they drove those chariots down into the opposing armies, that scythe would just cut off legs and cut torsos completely in two. Joshua had never faced that before. Not only was it these chariots, but they also had a a, a cavalry. Now, Israel didn't use any horses, not, not to any great extent. God told Joshua not to capture horses. That would have been a tremendous coup for Joshua to fight with horses. But God said, I don't want you to fight horses or fight with horses or capture horses. He said, instead, I want you to huck the horses. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment. Because if you look at your Bible there, please, in in verse number 9, we have one of the words here in the King James Version uh, that will actually vary depending upon which King James Version that you're using. None of us have a 1611 King James Version. If we had one, we wouldn't be able to read it. And so when you hear a preacher get up in the pulpit, bless God, we use the 1611 King James Version. No, he doesn't, because he couldn't read from it. Most of us use the 1769 King James Version. And what took place there is that there were some spelling changes and some standardization of spelling, I should say, and and, uh, some uh, variant letters that were used that were changed in the 769 version. But then since that time, um, we've also had Americanized King James versions that have come out. So you might have an Americanized King James version. That's where they changed uh, the spelling of certain words. And here in chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse number 9, we have one of those words that's going to vary depending upon which King James version that you're using. Now, some of you might have a version that says hocked. When it talks about the horses, H-O-C-K-E-D, they hawked the horses. And some of you might have one that says they hucked the horses, and that's H-O-U-G-H. And then still others may have one that says that they hamstrung the horses. It all means exactly the same thing. 
So it doesn't change the meaning of the Scriptures to have that word change to something that you can understand. So what God told Joshua to do, he said, I want you to huck the horses. I want you to hamstring them. Well, there were some things that God told Israel that they must not do when they went into the land of Canaan. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, one of the things that God said, when you get there, you can't make a king over you. I don't want any kings, so you can't do that. Then another thing, though, he said, he said to Israel, he said, you cannot capture horses. And he says, neither can you go back to Egypt to get any horses. And the reason that God said that was because if Israel began to multiply horses to themselves, that they would begin to trust in their armaments rather than trusting in God. And so he said, don't capture the horses. Instead, you disable all of the horses. And so that's what they did. They hamstrung the horses. So here's this great army that Joshua is up against. But Joshua showed no fear at all because in verse number 6, God already said, you don't need to be afraid of them because by this time tomorrow, I'm going to deliver all of them into your hands. So the size of an army that goes against God doesn't matter. And that reminds us of a time when there's going to be another army that comes against God. At the end of the tribulation period, there'll be a great army gathered Not an army of 300,000 men, but the Bible actually tells us this will be an army of 200 million men strong. And they'll fight against God and against God's armies, and God will utterly destroy them. And the Bible says there are so many that are killed in that battle. It says that their flesh will be given to the birds of the air. And not only that, but there will be a river of blood that flows for 200 miles, and it splashes up on the horse's bridles. And as we've been studying on Wednesday night, those angelic armies are on our side. And as Elisha said, fear not, for they that are with us are more than they that be with them. Then a fourth lesson that we learn from this uh, story, these stories in uh, Joshua 11 and 12 is that the battle is the Lord's, but the fight is yours. The battle is the Lord's, but the fight is yours. Earlier in the message, I said that The miracle, the sun standing still, that was the last miracle for Joshua in the book of Joshua. The last miracle actually came before the last military campaign was finished. And so as Joshua went up against this northern coalition, uh, God promised that the enemy would be delivered into their hands, but there wouldn't be a special miracle that would go along with this. Joshua had to go out there, and he had to fight as hard as he could, and Israel had to fight They had God on their side, and that's how they were going to win this battle. Now today, I think we find that there's a very dangerous heresy that's being taught. And that is people are teaching that when you become a child of God, that all you need to do as a Christian is just simply sit down, sit back, stop striving, stop working, and then God will be released to do whatever he wants to do in your life. And the picture that people give us is that God is standing on the sidelines. He's bound up by you and God can't move until you let God have free reign to do whatever he wants to do. I've got news for you. That is wrong. You don't stop God from doing anything that he wants to do. Uh, There is no one who thwarts the will and the purposes of God. The scripture says that God does what he wants in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And so you never can prevent God from fulfilling his purposes. But the scriptures also teach us that that God will fight the battles, but you won't win the victory unless you're out there fighting as well. The battle will be won, 
But there's a way that God has decided the battle will be won. You see, because you're saved, it doesn't mean that God is going to relieve you of all your personal responsibility. And so there are Christians that sit back and they worry and they fret, they wring their hands and they think, why isn't God doing something? Why isn't God helping me out with this? And the reason that God may not be doing something is because you're not doing something. You've decided to sit down and let God work when God says, I want you to stand up and go out there and do something. So we can't become couch potatoes when we become Christians. God does not fight the battle without you. But what he does do, he equips you with everything that you need for the battle. So you can forget about growing. You can forget about becoming a spiritual Christian and winning spiritual battles. If you don't do exactly what God says, you have to go out and do something. You have to take that helmet of salvation. You have to take that shield of faith. You have to take the sword of the Spirit. And you've got to use them. You've got to wield them. Because God is not going to fight this battle without you. You're required to be in it as well. And so there are so many injunctions about that in the Scriptures. You simply can't miss it. The Bible tells us to fight the good fight. We're involved in spiritual warfare. And there's just too much there for us to believe that the battle is the Lord's, but the fight is not ours. And then I want to remind you also, don't be discouraged because there is a fight. Because that's exactly what God said would happen. It's not unusual at all for any Christian to be involved in a fight. Paul said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But then also God says that he provides for us an avenue of escape with all the temptations that come against us. So whatever comes, the Bible says you can bear that. You can't do it alone because God is still in the battle But you've got to fight with God's weapons and with God's equipment that he gives you. Now, the fifth lesson that we learn from this is that there are no shortcuts to success. No shortcuts to success. I want you to look at verse 18 of chapter 11. It says, Joshua made war a long time with these kings. Joshua spent somewhere between five to seven years trying to conquer Canaan. And so it wasn't as easy for him as just stepping over the border of Canaan, watching all the enemies fall like dominoes. When you get into the battle for the Lord, you don't find instant success. But you can go to your Christian bookstore and you can find plenty of books there that talk about instant success. They can tell you, here's the one, two, three-step process that you need to go through and that's going to make you a spiritual, mature Christian. And so you just follow the steps that are there. Or you'll find books that say, well, here's the simple, easy way for you to grow a church. There is no simple, easy way. You have to put in the time required. Now, maturity comes from experience. And so I'll tell you that you need to watch out when you think you've got a better way to reach your goals. You've got a better doctrine than the pastor has that'll help you get what you want to accomplish. But it's just not going to happen. You've got to put in the time that's required. You know, I was somewhat amused uh, a few months ago, there was a person who wanted to argue some doctrine, and uh, he thought that I was wrong about some things, so he said, you know, I spent 36 hours studying these doctrines, and I really thought, 36 hours, man, that's impressive, Uh, 36 hours to come to your doctrinal conclusions. I don't know everything either, folks, it takes me 36 hours just to put three messages together a week. About a year and a half ago, I received a, a letter from one of our missionaries, And uh, he was one that we used to support. We don't any longer. But he wanted me to read a tract that he'd written on the doctrine of election. 
And, of course, he was against my position. And he said, well, I have received, I prayed, and I received more instruction in one hour than I received all the time that I've been a Christian from all the theologians that I've ever read. So I just wrote back to him, and I said, well, the conclusions that you come to in your track are about what you would expect from one hour of instruction. It takes a lot more than that. Folks, there aren't any shortcuts. I've been studying the Bible for 40 years, and I'm finding out new things all of the time. There is no instant success in the Christian life. It won't happen. And you'll find out this as well. You're going to be knocked down quite a few times during your Christian life. And you're going to have to recover from some of those knockdowns. Now, the sixth lesson, the last thing that we learned from this, is to do what God says, nothing more and nothing less. Do what God says, nothing more and nothing less. And this is what we learned from verse number 15 in chapter 11. As the Lord commanded Moses, his servant, so did Moses command Joshua, and so did Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Now, this is a real, a real credit to Joshua. He was given strict orders about the way that he was supposed to conquer Canaan. And step by step and very methodically, he did everything that he was required to do. Now, let me make a couple more points here and we'll be finished tonight. I don't think that there's anybody here who would agree with this, would, not, would disagree with this rather, that, that God does not want us to do everything that he requires. I mean, we're all convinced of that. We're supposed to do everything that God tells us to do. We never come short of anything that God says to do because when you leave out something, what you leave out is usually the most important thing for the next step that you're supposed to take that God wants. And so you always... Stick strictly to what God tells you to do. But what happens is, many of us start to study the Word of God, and we're convinced that we need to do all that God asks, but then we start to get a little bit too smart for God, and we figure now we need to do more than what God asks. And I'm going to warn you about something. You're going to end up in trouble sooner or later when you try to do more than what God says to do. Now, if we look at Joshua... I'm sure that there were many other dangers that would come on the horizon, many things that he was going to face. Sometime in the future, who knows? He he would have to butt heads with Egypt again. You never know. But Joshua didn't go conquer Egypt. He he just did what God told him to do. Uh, So he didn't put Egypt on the list of all the countries and all the enemies that he had. God told him to fight in the land of Canaan, so he just did what God told him to do. What we find out, though is that there are many churches and many pastors who want to put more on people than what God asks. And so they want to go beyond what the Word says, and and they start to add in all the things that they want into the mix. The Jews had that problem. Think about uh, what Jesus had to say about them. By the time you get to the New Testament, the Jews had so perverted the laws of God, they'd taken the Ten Commandments and they had added all different kinds of things to the commands of God, so many commands that the people weren't even able to bear up under everything that they had placed upon them. Jesus addressed it. He said, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. And so they'd taken their, their ceremonies, their customs and their rituals, all the things that God said that they're supposed to do, the laws they're supposed to keep, but then they start adding all this other stuff. And that kept the people oppressed and, and they were unable to, the Jews were unable to help the people to, to offer any kind of relief from the, from the spiritual burdens that they'd placed upon them. And don't you know, folks, that churches are full of that today? 
Now, the liberal churches have gone the opposite way. They've taken everything away from that even has a semblance of Christianity to it. They've gotten rid of that. But then the fundamental churches have gone to the opposite extreme. They've started to add all these things. And they start to invent things that they think make up the Christian life. And one thing is just as bad as another. I love what Brother Ekna was teaching our men at the men's retreat. And he was teaching us and making it very clear that our sanctification is not obtained by what we do. Sanctification is God working through us. But don't you know that many of the fundamental churches had the very same problem that Paul wrote to the Galatians about. He said, this only would I learn of you. Receive you the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? And so Paul says, can you be saved by grace through faith? And then expect that you will continue in the Spirit by the works that you do. And that's exactly what many churches do. You're not as good a Christian if you don't do exactly as I do. If you don't follow the same steps that I take, then you are not a good Christian. And so they begin to judge everybody by that. And their judgment is according to the conformity of a man-made standard that God simply says is not there. And so what they do is they bind burdens and create laws that God never intended for churches to make. Will we be a sanctified and holy people? Will we live by God's standard? I think that we will, but we'll never do anything to become holy. We are made holy and made righteous by Jesus Christ, and that's when the Spirit is working in us. And that's what changes our lifestyle. Rules that people make do not change lifestyles. They're just rules that you keep, and they won't make you more spiritual. Well, I want to conclude then with this final thought. Uh, chapter 12, sometime you get home and take a little bit of time to read this chapter. But in that chapter, you find a list of all of Israel's victories, all the people uh, and and kings that Joshua went up against. So Joshua wrote down his list. He made a checklist and he reads it off. He says, king of Jericho, one, check. King of Jerusalem, one, check that one off. King of Hebron, one, check that one. King of Lachish, uh, check that one. King of Jarmuth, one, he checks that one off. And on and on he goes, marking off all of these accomplishments. Now, let's go back to this thought of these 300,000 strong army that comes against Joshua. How long do you think that it would have taken for Joshua to defeat all of these people in Canaan if he had to go up every hill and down every valley trying to find all of these different people and conquer them one by one as he went? How long do you think that would take? It would take a very long time. So what seemed to be the very worst thing that could happen, and that is this whole huge army of all these Canaanites coming against Joshua at one time, the very worst thing that we would look at that could happen to him is actually the very best thing that happened to him because Joshua was able to defeat all of those Canaanites in one fell swoop. And what happens in those rest of the years that Joshua is finishing off uh, conquering the land is there are no huge, huge enemies out there any longer. What he's doing is just the mop-up operation, just the clean-up exercises. So what seemed to be the very worst thing that could happen to Joshua actually became the very best. Now, here's the last statement I want to make on your listening sheet. And that is, don't sweat it, because God has it all under control. Don't sweat it. God has it under control. 
So here's the things, Christian. You, you, you don't have to cry because you have one of those days where everything goes wrong. How many of you have those days? I mean, everything goes wrong. I mean, from top to bottom, things are going wrong all day long. And you cry and you complain about that. Well, step back sometime and think of it in this light. That God brought all of these things against me in one day so I could finish them all off in one day. And then there's not going to be all these huge problems day after day after day that I have to deal with. God's going to give me the victory against all of them right now. So when I have that big day that all those troubles come, I think there's a lot of days coming when there won't be any trouble at all. And that's the way to think of it. So when the big things come, get rid of them. And then when all the little things come against you, just flick them off like flies. Don't sweat it because God has everything under control. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we spent around your word tonight. We just ask you, Lord, that uh, there may have been some benefit to someone as we think about your word. Uh, Bless us, Lord, as we have this invitation time. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.